0: Our text this morning is uh, Nehemiah chapter eight, as we continue our study in the sequences and patterns of worship found in God's word and how we, how we follow those. So Nehemiah chapter eight, hear God's holy word. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up and Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen. Amen. While lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. So they read distinctly from the book, the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to give understanding and give understanding to the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to Yahweh, your God do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. So he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people saying, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we praise you that you have not left us in the dark and how you desire to be approached in worship The sequence and the order and the things that you have revealed through your word give us shape and order and meaning and relevance to our worship. It shapes us. It transforms us. We are delighted to be your people and delighted to be called into your presence. And so as we continue to study these things, guide us by your spirit into truth, deliver us from anything that would distract us or anything that is an error. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How many times have you found yourself talking about food while you're eating other food. You have a lovely dinner, a nice, well-prepared supper. You have friends over. And then you find in the middle of enjoying the meal, you're talking about those great ribs you smoked or the uh, perfect way to grill chicken or this great great dessert recipe that you happened across. And there you're eating food, but you're talking about completely other food. I mean, I wonder, does the food get jealous of the other food that you're talking about? That's silly, of course not. But you're at a table At a meal discussing the next meal or the one after that. Or you talk about a great restaurant that you visited. Oh, this is great. If If you want a steak, I know where you need to go. I know the place you need to go to. You're not done eating this meal and you're already planning for the next one. It seems like all we do when we're on vacation is to plan around what we're going to eat in what order. You're in the middle of lunch, but we got to hurry up and finish lunch because we got to do that thing and get to dinner in time for our reservation. And everything is guided around what and when we eat. Uh, but, but talking about food, why you're eating food, that's not weird. That's normal. It's on your mind, so you're going to talk about it. I bring that up for two reasons. First of all, that's kind of what we've been doing for the last few weeks Uh, we've been talking about worship while in the middle of worship. We're actually worshiping, but yet we're stepping aside to talk about worship. Last week, we had a sermon that was talking about the purpose of sermons. So I realize everything that we're doing and have done for the last few weeks is a little self-referential. We're talking about what we're doing while we're doing it. But it's also on my mind as we come to study this last big section of Christian worship when we end up at the table. It's highly significant that our time together in the presence of God with the saints ends with a symbolic meal. Now, the role of food in our life is enormous. Uh, We eat because we are dependent upon food for nourishment. Our bodies are not self sustaining, we do not do photosynthesis, we can't just soak up rays from the sun and turn it into energy. We can't absorb nutrients from the air around us, from the environment around us. We have to eat. And we eat because our continued existence is contingent upon that nourishment. So we are always planning and thinking ahead, looking for the next meal because we're dependent upon it. If we don't eat, we die. And the faithful person And the grateful person recognizes that every one of these meals comes from God who provides the food. Food, however, is more than just a bare necessity of life. Food is at the core of our festivity and our celebration in life. When we want to rejoice over something, when we want to celebrate a birthday or an anniversary, we do it around food. When we celebrate holidays, we don't gather around the family, get everybody together, and and we gather around a stack of books. We don't gather around candles or incense or a really nice painting or a sculpture. We certainly don't celebrate our independence by gathering around and just staring at a uh, copy of the Declaration of Independence or the United States Constitution. Uh, we gather around hot dogs and hamburgers and potato chips and potato salad and coleslaw. We gather around any time there's a good thing to celebrate. We gather around a table that is full of the fruits of creation. We have creation on our table. We have animals and we have plants and we have spices. And then we enjoy those things. We enjoy them giving thanks because our eating is Thanksgiving. We demonstrate Thanksgiving by enjoying things that we're given. If you bake me a cake because you love me, And by the way, that's what people do who love me. They bake me cakes. Uh, You're welcome to, anytime you like. If you bake me a cake, it would not be loving. It would not be grateful. It would not be gracious of me to take that cake and say, oh, that's really beautiful. That's really lovely. Thank you for doing that. I'm going to put this on a shelf, and we're just going to look at it and admire it. Uh, it's, It's really a lovely cake. It's a beautiful cake. And you would say, are you out of your mind? I don't want you to put it on a shelf. I want you to eat it. Aren't you thankful? Oh, absolutely I'm thankful. It's, it's, it's delightful. It's lovely. But you wouldn't trust my thankfulness unless I ate it and enjoyed it. I have to consume it. So God's goodness and his blessings are only truly appreciated when they're consumed, when they're enjoyed. We eat his blessings every day. We drink his blessings. We wear his blessings. We delight in looking at his blessings. We hear them and smell them. We take in his blessings every day through our senses. We don't merely think about them. I'm not going to just think about the cake, and, and, and that is some way showing appreciation for it. You would take it back, and you'd go give it to somebody who deserved it because I don't deserve it if all I'm going to do is think about it. And so biblical worship then engages all of the senses. Christian worship is not stark, plain, whitewashed, intellectual, internal. Christian worship is colorful. It's musical. It smells good. It tastes good. When you come to worship, there are things to do. There are things to say. There are things to eat. And there's things to drink. There are things to do with your body. Lift your hands. Kneel. Uh, sing. So Christian worship is not about giving you things to think about. I said this a couple of weeks ago and I'll say it again. This is not a seminary classroom. I'm not just imparting data to your brain. That's Christian worship is embodied worship. We bring our whole selves into worship and we worship together in an embodied incarnate ways. So because God has spread a table full of the bounties of His goodness, and because of all of history is headed toward that great marriage supper of the Lamb, then the gospel invitation is an invitation to a feast. When we preach the gospel, when we invite people to know Jesus, what we're inviting them to is to come sit down at the table of Jesus. We want them to be in fellowship with the Lord Jesus. And this is all reflected in in Jesus' own ministry his entire ministry was one great progressive feast. You've done that, right? You've gotten together with a couple other friends and you have a soup or appetizer at one house and everybody gets in the car and they go to the next house and you have your main course and you enjoy that and you get all in the car and you go to the third house where you have your dessert and your coffee. Well, that's Luke's gospel. The whole gospel of Luke is Jesus moving from table to table to table to table. And at these tables, he tells parables, he teaches, he loves people. He is worshiped by uh, the, the, his followers his disciples. And and then at these tables where Jesus is challenging and exhorting and comforting and encouraging, he tells these parables, these stories that reflect this. Like the story of a great king who prepared a great supper and all of the rich and all the influential people were too busy to come to that supper. So the king sent out his servant to collect the poor and the injured And the lame and the blind go out and get all of them and gather them up and bring them to the feast. Well, what does that parable mean? Well, we are the poor. We are the injured. We are the blind and the lame who have been called to sit down with the king at his banquet. Christian worship then every week is a reenactment of that invitation. The invitation goes out, come to my feast. You today have answered that invitation. You have said, I'm not too busy for this. There's nothing more important than this. I am going to respond to the invitation of the king. I'm going to come into his presence. I'm going to be washed. I'm going to wash up. I'm going to confess my sins. I'm going to wipe my feet. I'm going to take care of everything that is between me and my King. I've broken his covenant. I've sinned against him. I've despised his law. So I need to be refreshed and restored. And so I'm going to confess my sins as I come into his presence and you've been cleansed and you've been forgiven. And then God speaks to us through his word. Uh, And then he feeds us at his table. Every week we reenact that parable, that, that kingdom parable of coming to the feast of the King. And this is the same pattern we've been studying over the last several weeks in looking at that ancient order of Christian worship that we follow week by week. Confession of sin, hearing God speak to us, eating at his table. Last week, we focused in on that middle section, the ministry of the word. Now this week, we come to the final section, the communion section of the worship order. And remember that we base this also on so many examples in scripture, like the one from Nehemiah that we're going to get to in just a few minutes, but also in the sacrifices at the tabernacle and at the temple, they offered the sin offering, they offered the ascension offering, they offered the peace offering, they confessed their sins, they went up into God's presence uh, symbolically through the animal that was consumed by the fire and were incorporated in God's glory cloud and had fellowship there. And then the peace offering was the offering where they ate some, the worshiper ate The priest ate and the smoke was gathered up into God. The smoke was enjoyed by God. So we eat, the priest eats, and God consumes it together. Um, He's accepted our offerings and we eat before him. So this is the place now in this third offering, in the peace offering, in Christian worship. This is where prayers of thanksgiving and prayers of petitions are are made, prayers of supplication. Um, we, in our worship, after the sermon, after we give back to God a portion of what he has given us, then a deacon will lead us in thanksgiving. And that's the appropriate place for this because we're responding to God's gifts first by saying, thank you. But the entire peace offering is a thanksgiving. It's all thanksgiving in some, some traditions. Communion is called the Eucharist. That's not a Roman Catholic word. That's not a weird Episcopal word. It's a Greek word. And the word Eucharist just means Thanksgiving. So this last section of worship is where now that God has spoken to us, we respond in Thanksgiving. uh, And now uh, we also offer up our petitions. Always remember that as we pray, And as we worship, we are worshiping not only for ourselves, but we are standing in the breach. We are standing in the gap on behalf of the whole world. We are all priests who have a priestly duty to intercede for the world. We don't pray only for ourselves, but we pray... For the world. And so this is the part of worship where we offer up prayers for the whole earth. We pray for missions, we pray for other churches, we pray for people in foreign lands, we 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 pray that the whole world would submit to Jesus as King. It's essential that when we get together, that we pray for these things, because great things happen when God's people get together and pray. You can pray on your own. Absolutely. And please, once again, when I talk about our collective hearing of God's word, I don't ever mean to say, don't read your Bible on your own. Quite the opposite. I want you and you must study the scriptures. Whenever I say, it's important that we pray together. Don't ever hear me say, well, I really don't want you praying by yourself because that's absolutely incorrect. But your, your, your individual prayer your individual worship, your individual study of the scriptures flows out of what we are doing together. If you cut yourself off from the life of the body, you're going to get weird and crazy all by yourself. You're going to go places that uh, the, the, the body is a tether to reality and a sound teaching and a sound doctrine. So, so don't ever hear me say, don't do that, but that to continue doing it in the context of life in the, in the body. Absolutely. So at any rate, um, we, uh, we pray, we pray together. And when God's people lift up their prayers together, you see in the scriptures that God often moves and he responds in Acts chapter four, John and Peter are being harassed by the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests and elders at the, uh, at the temple. And, uh, it's the temple authorities who are, who are, uh, harassing Peter and John. And then the church gathers in Acts chapter four to raise their voice to God with one accord. They all pray together. How do you raise your voice to God with one accord? The picture here is not everybody speaking all at the same time, praying different prayers all at the same time. The, the, the picture, the image is that they're all praying the same thing at the same time so that what they prayed could be recorded and their prayer is recorded in Acts chapter four. Uh, most of what they say, they use the language of Psalm two, but they make some petitions before and afterward, they all pray together. And for them to all be able to pray together, it must mean that it was determined ahead of time, what they were going to pray. They had to agree. Okay, the leader says, let's pray Psalm 2. I've got some petitions. We all know Psalm 2 because we've all memorized it. So we're going to pray Psalm 2. And then I've got some more petitions afterward. And all of their minds and all of their hearts and all of their words are focused in the same direction. And then when they pray together, Luke writes in Acts 4, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. God's people pray, and they all pray in one accord. They all pray the same thing at the same time, in a time of deep distress and persecution, and the Holy Spirit responds to that prayer by filling them and shaking the earth. If you're like me, there was a time in my life where I thought, you know what? If you write your prayer down before you pray it, or if somehow everybody's praying the prayer, the same prayer at the same time, and prayers where you think ahead and plan ahead what you're gonna say, that really, that just kills the spirit, that quenches the spirit, because the spirit is all about impromptu things. The spirit is all about extemporaneous things. But then I realize, and of course, places like this in the scriptures where everybody's praying the same thing, I realize when you actually give it some thought, if you think through your prayers ahead of time, especially when you're leading in prayer in formal settings if you actually put some thought into it and rely on the resources of all the wonderful prayers that have been written throughout the history of the church, including all of the prayers that are in scripture, including the 150 Psalms that are in scripture, you can pray something that actually really is is meaningful and powerful. If I just pray off the top of my head, as I often do, I'm normally not going to say everything that needs to be said i'm going to get tongue tied and i'm going to take twice as long to say it as as i need to and it's likely that i may say something that's not super helpful you've been led in prayer before by people who have no have given no thought to what they're about to say and and you you hear these little affectations right you know we just lord we just lord we just lord we just We'll just, we'll just say it, just, just, just say it. Or, um, you know, father, oh, father, oh, father. Um, these are like little placeholders because I don't know what to say, so I'm gonna say this to get to the next thing. And of course, I'm not denying that people are praying with sincerity, but if you're leading people in prayer and we're praying together, let's give some thought. Let's put some care into what we're saying. When God's people pray the same thing at the same time in one accord and pray together in Acts chapter four, The Holy Spirit comes and shakes the earth. That's the opposite of something that's dry and boring and dusty. That's the kind of prayer that the Holy Spirit responds to. He he responds to prayer in one accord like this. So at the Lord's table in this part of the service, currently the, the deacon is leading us in a Thanksgiving prayer. We sing the doxology and then I lead us in a prayer of petition. And then we pray together the Lord's prayer we are praying together. We're lifting up a prayer in one accord and we're singing it, but we are, we are praying it. Um, and there, and there may come a time where we want to pray more things together right there. We, We may have short prayers like we're doing on Wednesday night. You know, we have, um, a lot of extemporaneous prayer on Wednesday night, but then we all pray together at the very end, the same prayer. Um, why would we do that? Why would we all pray the same thing at the same time? Well, um, There's there's good reasons for this. In Matthew chapter 21, when Jesus is talking about prayer, hear what Jesus says. He says, if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. Whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Now we hear that in our English Bibles and we say you, so that must be me. So if I pray for something uh, specifically, then God promises to do it. But the word there is the plural you. It's the second person plural. In your old King James Bible, if you read that in Matthew 21, it says ye, whatever things ye ask in prayer, believing ye will receive. So in proper English, it's y'all. Uh, it's actually uh, the Lord Jesus is saying, you all. If if y'all say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things y'all ask in prayer, believing y'all will receive. It is a collective, it is a plural. So this isn't a promise to individuals necessarily, it is a promise to the church. It's a promise that when y'all pray together in unified prayer, in that prayer offered up in worship, that is a prayer that will move mountains. Now, what is he talking about? A prayer to move a mountain, if you ask for this mountain to be cast into the sea? That is not some silly prayer about rearranging the landscape. Uh, where are they uh, when Jesus says this? What are they on the way to? Well, they're traveling up to Jerusalem. They're traveling to a very specific mountain. The temple sits on a mountain. And uh, he was going there. Jesus was on his way there to do battle with that temple, to do battle with that city on that mountain. And so everybody knew what mountain he was talking about. He's he's talking about a very specific mountain. If you say this mountain needs to be cast into the sea, I'm going to answer this prayer because Jesus knows that that mountain is about to be a source of great persecution and sorrow for the church. So he says, when you pray for that mountain to be cast into the sea, they knew what it meant. And he ends up answering that very prayer. In Revelation 8, you've heard me respond and refer to this uh, passage often. It's an image that's stuck in my mind. We see the prayers of the saints go up to God's throne, as smoke and incense, the angel pours out fire on the earth. And then in verse 8, what do we see? We see the mountain cast into the sea in Revelation 8. When the church prays together, as the incense and the smoke of our prayers go up, the angel responds, taking fire off the altar and flinging it to the earth. In that specific case, the mountain, the temple mountain was, was and, and everything that it represented was absolutely destroyed it was removed. The power of that temple and of that city was cast into the the sea and God answered that prayer. And so when we pray together, when y'all pray together, God responds. We say together, this, O Lord, is how we want you to shake the world and reorder it and reform it and revive it. One last reference to this and we'll move on to the next uh, thing in worship. In John 5, 1 John 5, 5, (laughs) listen to this. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we asked of him. Okay, John, we get it. We get it. You're talking about us. You're talking about all of us. Um, These promises are primarily focused on God answering his people collectively. On my own, I might ask for something that's really off base. that's really kind of nutty. that really is not consistent on my own. When we pray together, when lots and lots of his people pray together for the same thing, this is the prayer that moves mountains. So after we pray together, I lead us through some petitions and then we pray the Lord's prayer together in unison, in unity. After we pray, then we all confess our faith using the Apostles' Creed Or the Nicene Creed. About half the year we use the Apostles' Creed, and the other half we use the Nicene Creed. But it's significant that at the Lord's Table, we don't use the Westminster Confession. We don't use the Westminster Catechism. We don't use the Scots Confession or the Heidelberg Catechism or the 39 Articles. Those are all great and wonderful in their own right. But those are all the confessions or catechisms of specific branches of the church. But we come to the Lord's table not as a specific branch of the church necessarily. We come to the table as members of the church Catholic. Let me stop and define that word. When we use the word Catholic in the creeds, it's small c. It's another word for universal. We have very little affection and no allegiance for the Roman Catholic Church, capital R, capital C. Uh, we are not We're not pledging our allegiance to the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, In fact, um, we we want them to be reformed. They have a lot uh, that is glaringly obvious that they need to repent of. What we are saying, small c, and it's a great word, and we don't need to let them have it and act like it's their word because it's our word. Small c Catholic means, it refers to the whole body of Christ. Uh, these These creeds are the universal creeds. This is the universal faith of the church. And so what you find in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed are truths that the entire Christian church embraces. Every Christian ought to be able to confess what is in the Apostles' or Nicene Creed. Now, not every faithful Christian, not every... not every a child of God and believer in the Lord Jesus Christ can confess the Westminster Confession or some of the others. And if we ask them to do that before they come to the table, if we ask now, uh, before you come to the bread and wine, before you come to this table, can you pledge your allegiance uh, to the Scots Confession? They might not be able to do that. Many would not. Um, we would be putting a tighter restriction on the table than Jesus does. When we come to the table, we are asking, what do you believe? Before you come here, what do you believe? Whom do you trust? And if you can state that basic summary of Christian doctrine, you are welcome at the table. We want every Christian to be able to participate in this table with us. I've said often, we want the door to the table to be as wide as the door to heaven. We want the door to the church to be as wide as the door to heaven. So that if your Lutheran grandma or your Baptist uncle or your Roman Catholic cousin were to visit, we want them to eat with us. And they are welcome to, if they're in good standing with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, nobody under discipline, nobody who's been excommunicated, Uh, obviously. Um, But we want those true believers in the Lord Jesus to come and eat with us because this is not my table. This is not our table. This is not a Presbyterian table. This is not a reformed table. This is the Lord's table and all who can confess and profess the name of Jesus belong here. Now, some of those I just mentioned, they would exclude us, but we gladly include them. When we confess these truths together in the creeds, it is a powerful reminder of who we are. I always ask this question, Christian, in whom do you trust? And then we all start together with vigor and full hearts, full of conviction. We believe. These creeds are an acknowledgement that we're part of a church that is bigger than us, that the spirit is leading the whole church into truth. And we're a part of that. We're not all of the church, but we're we're part of it. I love what we're doing. I love our distinctives. I love the particular emphases that we have. I love our approach to worship and song and, and the Bible. I love all these things, but we recognize that when we come to the Lord's table, it's not our local church. It's not my agenda. It's not our favorite characteristics or the confession of a denomination that we bring with us, but we are confessing the shared faith of the entire body of Christ. And so when we use the apostles or Nicene Creed, we are confessing, we believe to the family of people that all share this in common. No one who disagrees on these essentials um, can be called a Christian, but here on this basis, here we can be unified. Outside of these things, we can have a lot of disagreement and a lot of discussion, and there are important conversations to be had. We don't stop having those conversations. But the Lord's table is not a place for sectarian conflict. It is about agreement and peace and communion. But for some reason, the church has always made the point of unity to be a point of division. And that's precisely what Paul rebuked the Corinthian church for. And we get it backwards. So here we confess the things that aren't up for grabs. These are the things upon which the Christian faith stands or falls. When we recite the creeds, we confess that we are a people bound to the body of revealed truth that has always been held by the church. These are ancient creeds, and these are things that we believe to our core. These are the things that I would die for. If you ask me to either deny any of those things in the Apostles' Creed or die, I'm sorry I'm, I'm dead. I'm a dead man because I'm not going to deny them. I will stake my life on the truths in the creed because we're not free to create our own reality. We're not, we're not free to reinvent our own truth the way that everybody else around us does. How many people, when you ask them, what is it you believe? They'll start off, well, I feel. <laughs> that's, that's the first thing they say. Well, I feel. I feel like there's a happy afterlife and just everybody makes it there. That's what I feel. Oh, okay, you feel that. I feel that if you mess up in this life, you get a second chance. And you might come back as a turtle, or you might come back as a badger, or you might come back as a opera singer or something else. You might, you might get another, you might get another chance. Oh, you feel that way. Um, But see, you know, when we confess the creeds, we're saying we don't have a right to make up our own reality. That is arrogant, and that is prideful to make up your own reality. No, we submit ourselves to the faith once delivered to the saints. The Apostles' Creed comes from the first or second century. The Nicene Creed comes from the year 325. These things weren't made up yesterday. These things have been around a very long time, and they're much, much, much older than us. And we say, that is where we plant our flag. That is what I believe. The Christian faith stands or falls on these truths. Then, having confessed our faith, we move to the ceremonial meal. We eat and drink in God's presence, just like they did in the peace offering, that third offering, our sins have been forgiven. They've already been dealt with. The sins have been put away. Our father has spoken graciously to us and now it's time to rest and to rejoice in his presence with real bread and real wine. This is a celebration. The Lord's table is festal. It's not mournful. This is a time of joy. This is not a time of lament. And so we looked at Nehemiah chapter 8 just a few minutes ago. I referenced this very same scene last week and talking about the way that Ezra communicated God's law clearly and how that's such a wonderful example of, of preaching and of delivering God's word. Remember, this is the time where Israel came back from Babylonian captivity. After 70 years, they're here to reorder their society. They have an opportunity to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. They come back, but what they need to do is refresh their commitment to the Lord. They need to refresh their covenant with God. And so they have a ceremony where they're going to refresh their commitment to God's law. And Ezra rises up on a platform with the book of the law. The people are so convicted that they fall down on their faces and they cry out. They prostrate themselves on the ground. And then Ezra reads the law. And when he finishes, there's a meal. And even though the people are cut to their heart with a sense of their own sin, and even though they're all grieving, Nehemiah says, listen, this day is holy to Yahweh. Don't mourn. Don't weep. Go eat the fat. Drink the sweet, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. You better not cry. You better not be saying, we've already dealt with your sins. Go eat a Twinkie, go eat a ho-ho, get a cupcake. Get some, uh, you know, uh, uh, good sweet stuff and drink some good, good wine because Yahweh is your strength. Rejoice. So what do we see in this scene? They repent of their sins, They hear God's word read and taught, and then they eat a meal. That's the order, that's the sequence of of these events. Now, we've seen that before, right? We do that every Lord's day. We repent of our sins. We hear God speak through his word. We eat a meal. That's how the covenant is renewed. But here we also see something about the attitude with which they approach these things they are to eat in joy because their sins are forgiven. And this is a joyful time of celebration. So when God restores you and when God sets you upright, and God puts you back together, it's time to eat and be happy and to celebrate that. Now, if God's people are exhorted on that side of the resurrection, you know, about 500 years before the Lord Jesus comes, if they're exhorted to feast with joy on that side of the cross, on that side of the resurrection, What about us on this side of the resurrection? How much more should we really rejoice? The Lord's Supper then is not a time to play sad music. It's not a time to make long faces, sad faces. It's not time to have quiet funeral music. The Lord's Supper is not a weekly funeral for Jesus. This is a time of gladness. This is a time of full enjoyment of God's good blessings. This is a time of happiness as a body, which is why we aren't quiet I'm not going to let you be quiet. We're not going to be quiet. We're going to sing. We're going to have music. I don't want you sitting there with thinking this is just me and Jesus time and just block out every distraction because this is my private time with Jesus. No, it's not. That's not what this is. That's not what this is for. How is that communion? How is that? How is that discerning the body? You know, uh, discerning the body, when the apostle Paul talks about that, he doesn't mean sit and stare at the bread and try to figure out what that has to do with the body of Christ. That's not what discerning the body is. Where is the body of Christ? Look to your left and look to your right. Look around this room. There is the body of Christ. And the problem with the Corinthian church is they weren't discerning the body of Christ. They were actually abusing the lesser members of the church. They weren't uh, properly discerning who is in the body. Uh, so, So look around. Who are you worshiping with? Who are you in communion with? Who are you in peace with? The body of Christ. I am part of the body of Christ. That's how you discern the body. So this this, uh, festal atmosphere is also why we have wine and not grape juice. Uh, There's so many novelties that have cropped up around the Lord's Supper. It's almost like somebody doesn't want us to do it. It's almost like we have an enemy who wants to destroy this point of unity and rejoicing in Jesus. Uh, So there's somebody out there who wants to take all the joy out of it and ruin it. Jesus used real wine Jesus took real bread and real wine, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, do this. And for the last 2,000 years, we've tried to do everything but that. We've tried to just uh, pull it apart and do all kinds of weird things with it. There's nothing more plain and simple than taking bread and wine, eating and drinking. And by the way, nobody had a problem with wine before uh, Prohibition. And then (laughs) during Prohibition, a guy named Welch came along and uh, thought he could make some money with grape juice. But the Bible doesn't talk about grape juice it talks about real wine. And the Corinthians weren't getting drunk at the table because they were using Capri Sun. They weren't getting drunk at the Lord's Supper because they had grape knee highs. That's not what they were using. So we use wine, real wine, and we do it unashamedly, without apology, because it's a real joyful feast. It's not a time to mourn. And I would be sad if we had Welches every week, because it kind of hurts your throat. Have you ever just drank Welches and just straight? Am I the only one? It kind of hurts my stomach. It, it's so strange. It's so weird. It's dead wine. You've killed it. You've killed the fermentation process. Now you're drinking dead wine. I want to drink living drink, living wine. It's for us. So we eat this ceremonial meal, this symbolic feast that is assigned to us, and it's a seal of all of God's promises in Christ. Communion is not just a snack at the end of worship. You know, you've been good. You sat still. You were quiet. Now you get a snack before you go. It's not just that, it's a means of grace. The two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper are given to us to nourish and to strengthen our faith. It's through the sacraments that God declares and exhibits and and grants his grace to his people. The reformed confessions speak of the sacraments as signs, but not empty signs. They're not just pictures, but they're also seals of God's grace. By the way, the Lord's table is not the time for the Westminster Confession, but the sermon, you can do it there. I can get away with it here. And I actually want to quote from the confession in just a minute. But we participate in and we benefit from the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus through the sacraments. Now, at the Lord's table, we don't re-crucify Christ. We don't dramatically or magically turn the bread or wine into something else, into flesh or blood. But we receive the benefits of the sacrifice of Jesus spiritually at the Lord's table. Now, let me just pull out a few phrases from the Westminster Confession. And I do this because there's such a precision and such a wonderful clarity that it speaks to this. So, So listen, just a few little sentences. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in them. And now uh, in him, to confirm our interest in him. And then a little bit further down, there is in every sacrament, spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified Whence it comes to pass that the names and the effects of the one are attributed to the other. Let me slow down and repeat that there is a sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified, which is to say the washing of baptism is a sign of the thing signified. What is being signified is the washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So, so the baptism is a sign of the real thing is the washing and renewing of the holy spirit. Our our eating of the lord's supper is a sign of the thing signified, which is our receiving the sacrifice of Jesus. We are dependent upon him as fully as we are on bread. Just as we're dependent on food and drink, he is our spiritual nourishment for our spiritual growth and health. And then regarding the supper specifically, the confession says this. Worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements of the sacrament, do then inwardly also by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in with or under the bread and wine. There's nothing that changes about the bread and wine. Yet as really, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements uh, themselves are to their outward senses. So what are we saying? At the Lord's table, we really and truly receive Jesus. We receive all the benefits of his death, just as truly as we eat the bread and drink the wine, we are in the spirit And by the power of the Spirit, eating and taking that sacrifice. This is our peace offering as I've gone through the sacrifices. So you understand why we do this every week. We need this physical, concrete, objective evidence that we belong to Jesus, that he is Lord and Savior and King and Friend. The historic Christian liturgy then doesn't leave you twisting in the wind. You aren't left to figure out where you stand with God every week based on your own feelings on any given day, even not to uh, say, I don't, I don't know. How do I feel today? You aren't left to base your position uh, on your past experiences. Did I really believe when I prayed that prayer? And did I really believe that I really believe Did I really mean it? And do I mean it now when I prayed that prayer? Um, And you're not basing your standing with Christ on your own works. You see all of these approaches that just, it just burns you out so quickly. And I've been there, and I know many of you have been there as well. This emotional roller coaster of where do I stand? Have I done enough? Have I meant it enough? Have I been genuine enough? Have I been sincere enough? We're tethering our position in Christ to our emotions, and that is exhausting. No, in Christian worship, we have these objective truths God called you to come before his presence today, and you came. And we called you to confess your sins, and you did. And you are really and truly forgiven. And then God speaks to us through his word. John read big chunks, portions of scripture, and I read from Nehemiah chapter 8. And now we're trying to interpret and apply and give the meaning of these words. And this also is very objective, and this all confirms to you that you belong to Jesus. And to cap it all off, you get to eat at his table. Why would you wait and think that it makes it more meaningful to eat at his table like once a quarter or once every other month? How's that more meaningful? You know, I'm going to put off lunch today because it'll be more meaningful if I wait till Thursday. I'm sure I'll really enjoy lunch today if I wait till Thursday. I need lunch today and I need dinner tonight. Jesus said to do this as often as you drink this cup is my memorial. I don't know how to do it more often than every time the church is gathered we all get together. It's, it's so meaningful that I can't skip a week. I don't want to skip a week. My king has invited me to his table and I am his servant and I don't have anything more important on my calendar than to come into his presence, to be cleansed and forgiven, to hear his word and to eat with him and his saints. So after the supper at the end of worship comes the benediction. There's a declaration or a pronouncement of God's blessing upon you. Now, this benediction at the very end, it is a pronouncement. It is a blessing. It isn't a prayer. The benediction is not a prayer, so you don't have to bow your head. You don't have to close your eyes. I always say lift up your head. And by the way, I also, also say in the... Um, in in the affirmation of your forgiveness, I also say, lift up your head. It's not a time to fiddle with your bulletin or look at your shoes or, you know, uh, mess around with uh, other things. Look up here. Look, I say, lift up your heads, lift up your heads and receive the benediction of the, of the living, of the living God. I also raise my hands this way to bless you. I can't put my hands on all of you Uh, but I'm doing it in a symbolic way. I'm putting my hands over you, ordaining you, setting you apart for the work that you have to do this week for your mission in the world. So this is the posture of receiving blessing. And this is how we hold our hands when we sing the doxology or the Gloria Patri. We're in a position, a posture of prayer. We're also in a position of receptivity. We are receivers of God's blessing in this prayer. It is appropriate to raise your hands in worship. There are many places in scripture that that refer to this. Psalm 63, 4 says, thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. Psalm 141, 7, let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire that therefore men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and and doubting. So it's appropriate to lift up your hands, but we do it corporately. I'm not here to try to out-worship you or to show off. We do things together. So we raise our hands like this to pray and to sing. And uh, this is how I pronounce blessing. And what I'm saying to you is that you've been forgiven, you've been instructed, you've been fed, and now you're ready to be sent out. We're unleashing you on the world. Go out with with your charge, on your mission. And as you go, God is promising to be with you and bless you, and he's going to prosper your work. So on the Lord's Day, I always use that priestly benediction from Numbers that God gave Israel's priests to pronounce on the people after they completed the sacrifice. There are other blessings, there are other doxologies in scripture, but there's one priestly benediction, and it's, it, it seems best to use that one. So having been cleansed, having been refreshed and instructed, having been fed at his table, we are ready. We've been reordered, we've been reorganized to begin a new life in the world as God's people. You see then how worship recenters you, how it reorients you, how it makes you whole. It reminds you who you are. It is then essential for life. Our goal here in worshiping in this orderly way is we do this with the hope that it will lead to orderly living. We're not just doing here what feels good or what is very entertaining. We're not driven by the desire to pack in lazy, bored, nominal Christians who don't want to be asked to do anything but just want to sit and watch other people do it. If we're driven, number one, by the question, what does the Bible say about worship? Has God revealed anything about what pleases him through the, vision, uh, uh, the visions of heavenly worship, through the sequences he's established in scripture? And if he has revealed these things, we want to be faithful to do that. And we do that in worship so that on Tuesday you ask, has God said anything about how I need to conduct my business? Has God said anything about how I need to run my house and train my children? And if so, we do it. We are faithful and and working to please God in worship so that we set an example so that you do every other day of the week you do the same thing. That is a priority in your life to please Christ. You see, we're not living on feelings when we get together for worship. And we're not manipulating your feelings. So the last thing in the world I ever want to do is to manipulate your feelings. We are not being governed by feelings or led around by our feelings. We are being governed by biblical principles so that when you go out, you are governed by biblical principles. On Monday morning, on Tuesday afternoon, on Saturday night, we live in a world that is, that is outrageously, woefully disordered, a world that is enslaved under the tyranny of, of out of control, anxiety, fear, lust, and greed. Where and how can the church begin to establish order, but when we come together in God's courts, that we do this in an orderly way, in a way that we're seeking to please God and follow the patterns and the sequences and the attitudes that he has required. We're going to look at this one more time next week, but for now, let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to continue to reform us and grow us by your spirit give us clarity, show us our blind spots, show us where we might please you more because that's our desire. Because we know that by pleasing you, there's much blessing and there's much fruit. You defend us from our enemies. You grant uh, us those things that we need to complete our mission and to lead effective lives as men and women, husbands and wives, sons and daughters in this world. And so father, we ask you for your blessing in Jesus name. Amen.